Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. guest today is Pierre Ben Suzanne, one of the all-time greats in acoustic guitar. Please join us in our conversation. Especially during this crazy time. It's crazy, huh? Well, this is very weird, uh, a little bit uh, frightening, and yet uh, I'm trying to take it uh, the best way I can. I have a lot of time. I never had so much time ahead of me. <laughs> yeah. I've been painting my house. I've been doing the garden. Exactly. I've been even doing construction, uh, you know, caissons and uh, rebuilding walls. Whatever comes up, I just say, well, there's nothing else for me to do. I mean, <laughs> the house needs it. <laughs> yeah. How was your day today there in France? Oh, well, I've been working on some scores, uh, doing music, mostly doing my emails, a bit of management. Okay. But mostly uh, mostly uh, working on my uh, on the tunes of my last album, of my new album, in fact. Still still revisiting them and, and playing them because I was going to perfectize them on my tour, but the tour is not, has not happened, so... Yeah, I need to play them, and I need to um, to to feel um, ready. See what my fingers, how are my fingers behaving with this music, and how is the music changing? And so I try to stay in contact with them as as much as possible, uh -huh. and also to work on new pieces and um, music that I've, I have already written. But now I'm I'm sort of learning learning what I wrote. You know, I don't yeah. know if it makes sense. You know, I don't necessarily know how to play what I write, but I I, I write what I want to hear, and then um, I of course I, I check with my fingers if it's fingerable, doable, if it makes sense, and then once I enter, once I immerse myself into it, I really find out what it takes, technical, technically wise, and and how I'm behaving with the music and how I can. And what the music dictates that I can follow follow through, you know. So, there's a classical guitarist here in Laguna Beach. He's quite well known. His name is Eric Henderson, and he was one of Segovia's uh, star pupils. And I asked him, I go, "How much do you practice?" And he says, "Two hundred percent." That way, when I'm having a bad night, I'm at a hundred and ten percent. Yes, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Yeah, I can do that. I can't do that. I'm, 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 I don't know. I cannot play 200, practice 200%. This is, this is too much. It will fry me up, you know. Oh, okay. Well, maybe, I, maybe I, your, uh, maybe your uh, expectation is a lot uh, higher than a, another person. So your 100% is more like a 200%. <laughs> oh, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I don't know about that, but thank you. But no, what I, what I, I feel that there is much more to it than only practicing. There is also a sense of unpredictability that you cannot pilot, you cannot control. And you have to sort of not expect that everything is going to be according to the rules and according to what you have planned. And okay. you, can, you can practice all what you want. There will be a, a moment of uncertainty that are, in fact, that we can call life, you know, and this is what this is exactly where music goes. Music needs those moments for you to react with them, to go along with them, and mm -hmm. some amazing things can happen. And you can practice all what you want. You cannot predict that. And sometimes you know a lot of things, but it requires you to stop uh, uh, going to that well of knowledge mm -hmm. and go to another well that 
that you don't even know it exists, but it's there. And so the practicing thing for me is more like uh, to give my fingers the, the information of where they can go, of, uh, to give them a remembrance of locations uh, versus sounds and pitch. Mm-hmm. And so there would be moments when I, I'm trying to forget everything I know and to try to go into music and my fingers, thanks God, with a bit of help and a bit of luck, they will sort of lead the way to me. They will sort of go there. Well, it sounds like you're at least familiar enough with these pieces that you've written to be able to do this album. Do you say as one? Is that how you pronounce that? How yeah, do you... as one, yeah. Yeah. Now, now I've listened to it twice since I briefly have only had it for a few days, and uh, I, I mean, you should be very proud. This is like for me, you know, this is like a masterpiece. So, uh, thank you. Uh, I love it, and my wife. Uh, bad for me because she started listening to it with me, and she said, "How are you going to get your guitar to sound like that?" You know. And I went, oh, come on, this, this, this guy, Pierre. Uh... Now, now, going back, I, I saw you several years ago at, at, at a house concert that was fantastic. I mean, somebody, I guess they, they stage a concert at their house and they set their whole house up, you know, with chairs going right back into the patio and they get as many people there. I don't know if you remember that, but this, uh, is, this is our what, conversation. What was it in the LA area? Yeah, yeah. It was in Bellflowers. South, south of LA? Orange County, maybe? Uh, I don't know. I can't. I mean, I know it was in the suburb of Los Angeles. But uh, finishing up my story, going about the sound of the Loudon guitar that you're, you're evidently you're still playing it. Uh, but uh, our conversation went like this. Hi, Pierre. How are you doing? It's John. Oh, John, hi. Listen, I did this. And you said you had two... Neve preamps and two Neumann microphones or something like that. And you were so enthusiastic about the recordings that you were making, the conversation just quickly just went straight <laughs> to the technical side of what you'd been doing. And, uh, boy, it sure uh, pays off because it sounds fantastic. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank yeah, you. you should I, be very I don't pre- really remember the conversation we had, but... Yeah, but I that's where your head was you. at. Your head was at, hey, there's John. I'm going to tell him about my uh, my setup. I've got the I that's got this fantastic I must, I must recording. I must have been obsessed with it when <laughs> totally, I Totally, totally obsessed. Um, okay, okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a sort of a, of a com, uh, tech, technology freak at some points. You know, sometimes I'm so immersed into equipment, sound, and this and that. And, and, uh, but it's paying like, off. Well... Recently, I reconfigured my studio completely because I was sort of, I'm not going to mention the name, but I've been using one software to record and I was a bit of fed up of, of the policy behind the software. Like you have to subscribe every month and pay every month. Yeah. And it started to, I started to feel a little bit invaded. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to go to something else, to not name it Cubase. So I'm going to learn how to use Cubase now. So I also changed a lot of things in my configuration. So I'm also spending time um, with real uh, technology and sound out to, 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 to at least to work with those tools, you know, and not always depend on other people to help me. Of course, I need other people to help me, but I need to do the groundwork myself. Yeah, it's so hard. In September, I have a friend coming from Centre France who's going to spend like one week, 10 days with me. He's going to help me to patch my studio again and to teach me how to use Cubase. Um, of course, you can go to all those tutorials online, but it's not the same when you have someone next to you and you, you can do things together. It's much more fun. I'm always, know? always thinking about that. Whenever I'm doing recording, I'm saying, if I had someone here to hit that button and check those, uh, check those levels, I could run into my soundproof booth and do the recording right. from there. That way I wouldn't get any leakage out in my control room, you know, because there's fans on my equipment and I got a door open for air. And, you know, it's like, yeah, well, having another technician there. Like, I interviewed Carl Verheyen a few weeks ago, and uh, he says, I want somebody to be with me who has practiced recording on equipment as much as I've practiced my guitar. 
that way we can come up with the optimum result. And uh, well, he's you know doing movie soundtracks and very big, high-profile projects, so you can understand why he would need an engineer there for that sort of purpose. But uh, yeah, when you're doing it yourself, it's uh, it's uh, there's hardships. To be honest, I'm not doing it myself. I still depend on, a, on an engineer uh, to set up the mics, the levels. But I do, I do care about what equipment I get. So I'm, oh, okay. I'm going through a lot of in, in, into details and in a lot of blogs and online to to read uh, people's comments, uh, users, what they feel about this, about that, the questions, the answers, and then one size. Because you know it's a lot of money to 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 spend. Time so you, you need to have the best thing for your bucks, you know, and for your buck. And so I was um, once I feel that maybe there is something I should get. This is when I start to contact my friends, uh, engineers here and there mm-hmm. in several parts of the world, and I start talking to them, not taking too much of their time. But then this is when I ask for their insights. And then I ask someone to come in my studio and set up the mic, the levels. We do the sound together. And then this person can go and I can be on my own. And uh, like I did for Aswan, for instance, I do all the recording by myself, the editing, the things. My wife comes down. We listen together. And then I, I go on like this. And at some point, the engineer comes back and we listen to this together. And he starts looking at the at the files to see if everything is according to this and that before going to the mix so that we, we look at the files to, to not lose time at the mix, you know. You're doing me a huge you're doing me a huge favor because when my wife listens to this interview, I can say, You see, that's how he did it. I don't have all those <laughs> I don't have those <laughs> facilities, you know, he's got people, he's got you know, he's got an entourage of help, you know. It's like, well, anyway, yeah, it sounds great. Well, by the can, way, you you can optimize your help. You can optimize your help. It's not like you need someone to stay one week to help you, um, but but you can have someone. You know, you. I was very lucky with Aswan. I did a subscription, a sort of um, a, a crowdfunding thing, and I had a lot of help from from people who ordered the album, other people who bought uh, pre advance who pre bought concerts, private concerts at their home. And so, with all those fundings, I was able to to uh, finance the project mm-hmm. and various people, Jean Marie Kai, who did me a great favor to to come for not too much money, and he was my co-producer. And I think his uh, his opinion was tremendous for me. And also, I had uh, an engineer who did the tracking, an engineer who did the mixing. Um, I bought equipment for the record. Um, I also had some musicians to join me and this and that. And, you know, all those things, it adds up quickly. Um, but the technology sometimes helps you to stay alone and, and function by yourself. Like, for instance, you don't need any more to go from your uh, your uh, 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 room, control room, and run to your tracking room. You can stay in your tracking room and use a remote. Mm-hmm. You know, and so from the remote, everything is there. You can see your software, how it behaves, and you can check the levels. You can turn on, off, and that's that's quite amazing. You know, in fact, the the thing, the tricky thing is that I found in my experience that my studio needs a voltage controller. This is a thing which is a which a little detail that could kill the session. You know, imagine you are like doing music for 20 minutes for half an hour and all of a sudden you have a, a, a you have a, a voltage problem and it kills your recording it basically erase it and you have to start all over again so that happened quite a few times <laughs> i i have a, a power conditioner um uh, it went out and i said well uh, i can just bypass it and i'll just do this recording i just plug all my stuff straight into the wall and I, you know i should be able to get away with it uh-uh I had no. so much, so much sixty cycle hum. I guess from the neighborhood refrigerators and uh, power tools and whatever was going on, it picks up everything, right? So you have to have a a, a power conditioner, you know, to uh, to alleviate and filter out all of that stuff. Uh, I want to bring up a point here about recording. Uh, I'm looking at your Wikipedia, and 
vividly or yeah, vividly. Was that the last uh, recording that you released in 2010? It was the last studio recording. In between, I had a triple live album, which which is called Encore, and who won several prizes. But my studio last studio recording before us one was vividly correct. Yeah. That's ten years ago. Ten years ago. <laughs> wow. But you know, in in the time between, I've been touring mostly. Right. Uh, touring a lot, and uh, now that I don't tour anymore, I realize how valuable it is to not tour, and to stay home, and to do. To, to work in depth into projects that you never have the time to fulfill yeah. correctly on the road all the time. Take advantage of your time and not necessarily reinvent yourself, but uh, finish uh, ideas that you may have had and bring them to life, perhaps. Well, it's one thing to work on the deadlines, but to work on the deadlines all the time is, is tiring. Yeah. And, um, and you need to be at least to control your deadline yourself. You, you need to be the one to give you a deadline. Sure. And, and so you should not be too flexible, too easygoing about time. But um, taking more time to take the time to look at little details in depth and then move on, uh, validate the information under the fingers to look at your music, to rewrite certain things that you don't like, that you feel could be better. I think this is, this is crucial, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes when you work against against the clock and you you have to go on the road to go on tour, and to have a record to go on to be on the road and to sync with the tour, sometimes the record is hardly uh, hardly concluded, hardly finished. You you have already to tour instead of doing the other way around to tour. Oh, well, I see the deadlines being able to make the it. Deadlines of the tour, you know. Yeah, yeah. It dictates that you need a record to go on the road because the media are going to help the bus to go on, so you need to yeah, be on the road. Yeah, it all, it all uh, work, yeah. it all interacts and uh, works together. Yeah, it's like but a it, machine. It, it should work, it should work, uh, it should work uh, uh, reverse. You should go on the road, play all this new music that people, in fact, discover. And so because they don't know it, it puts less pressure on you, right? So you can play this music, you can change things, you can even make mistakes, uh, and you can learn from, from how people react, and you can also grow with this music. And after a tour, when you go home, you have a lot of information, and then you can go in the studio and start recording this music. But the other way around is very weird. If I had to record as one today, it would not be the same album at all. Thank God. Yeah, because I, I really like not. the way it is. It's fantastic. No, I mean, I'm I'm happy. I'm not trying. To, I'm not trying to yeah. be funny here. I really, I don't know about proud. I don't think. I don't know if I am proud of this record. I am happy of the way it came out, considering the context. I think the music works. The music is telling. The music sure. is taking you to to places. It's the, the music functions. It 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 has a real musical uh, DNA. But, mm. but it's if if I can be my my most uh, terrible judge, um, the music lacks life. This album, it's a bit green. It's a, it's a bit green. It's a bit green. Oh, I see. So because you didn't you didn't have it on the road. You didn't get to take it out and test drive it and bring green. it back and rework it. What I mean, exactly. What I mean by if I would do it. It would be a different record. Would be that I probably will have the music to to dance and to flow differently. Mm -hmm. I will, there would be more nuances, more expansion sometimes, sometimes more slowdown, sometimes very, very pianissimo places, more fortissimo places. I, will, I think I will play with more uh, dynamics because this dynamic would be totally inherent to how music functions life in front of an audience. And speaking of which, I've been asked those three or four last months to do uh, streaming concerts because... Apparently, this is now the only way. Virtual concerts, yeah. You know, this is the only way for touring musicians to exist. And I can't. I can't. I, I can't it feel doesn't it. Even, it doesn't even speak to me. Like doing a concert on my own in front of a camera, pretend that, of course, there would be people like, like everyone in his privacy, in her privacy, looking at this and listening. Okay, but. I'm old school. I need I need to to feel the presence of people, to 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 smell their sweat, to look at their eyes, to feel their presence, their energy, and this feeds me. Um, this feeds my drive to start the concert and to not interrupt the concert until it's finished. 
But if I'm alone, I feel that I could start a, a piece and then stop. <laughs> and then move, move on to another piece and then talk and, and then answer the phone. You know, it's, it'd be, it's, it's so unreal that. Maybe anyway. you should. That's how you should do it. You should stage a concert. And right when you go to play, the phone rings. You go, just a second here. You answer the phone and then you put it down. Wait a minute. What? Oh, that was right. You know, you just completely distract yourself uh, and not even have to play the guitar. Do, do, you, oh, rem no. do you remember the moment in your childhood? Like uh, you, t you started taking piano lessons when you were very young for a few years and then you started on guitar. But do you remember that moment where the light bulb went off and you went, this is it. This, this, I'm going to do this. This music thing is for me. Do you remember that exact moment? <laughs> Vividly, I remember that exact moment vividly. <laughs> wow! Like the album. Um, in fact, I think I was twelve years old, and I was already playing piano. Uh, in fact, I had stopped playing the piano because I started to play piano when I was six, and then I start. I have taken the guitar from the age of ten or eleven or something. I taught myself, and I was living with my parents. Of course, I was twelve. I was going to school. And uh, I remember exactly that very moment when the decision was made to become a full-time musician. My father asked me to go into the premise to to, to get some food from uh, the the food the food place where that we had in our apartment. So I went, and then I had this question: What are you going to do with your life? You know, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, like, oh my God, yes, this is important. What am I going to do with my life? And the answer came in the next. 10 seconds, you are going to be a full-time musician, so do not worry, everything will be fine. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's not quite Isn't like Ravi Shankar's story. Did you ever hear that story about how he... Uh, I have never heard that story. Oh, no. well, I'll just take a few seconds to tell you. He, was, <laughs> he, he and his brothers were running a huge uh, dance troupe, music troupe. They had like 50 people, and uh, of course they went bust, they went broke. They, so all these people were staying with him, all the artists and dancers and musicians. And, of course, a, an Indian uh, you know, entourage, a show like that, requires a lot of uh, personnel. And he took it upon himself, you know, the responsibility of looking after all of these people, um, you know, uh, and he was totally burdened by it. So he decided he was going to kill himself, right? So wow. he, wrote, he wrote a letter you know, and he imagined everybody at his funeral saying what a great guy he was because he took care of all these people and, you know, and so so he wrote the letter and he was just about to walk out to, uh, you know, to the train station and throw himself on the tracks and his teacher came to the door, or actually a disciple of his spiritual teacher came to the door, said, my guru is out in the car, he wants to come in and talk to you. And, and, you know, Ravi wow. Shankar didn't know what was going on. So the, 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 the mystic, the sage, came into the house, sat down. He says, look, you're going to be a famous musician. This is not the time to kill yourself. And that's how, wow. that's how it happened. That's in his book. It's called uh, My Music, My Life. And uh, when I read that's that, amazing. I went, well, there you go. There's, there's an affirmation for you. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Well, no. It well, me. It was not so. It was not so dramatic. You know. I just, <laughs> well, I just had this dramatic. I had no idea if I was going to be famous or not. It was not totally not the point. I was just trying to decide what I was going to do with my life, and I, I I went I went back to the dining room and I spoke to my parents. I said, "Daddy, this is what you want. Here it is." And by the way, I just had this revelation. When I would be 16, I'm going to quit school and I would become a full-time musician. I just want you both to know. And my, my father looked at me smiling. My mother looked at me like, oh, yeah, sure. And then every year after that, I said, Mama, three years. Mama, two years. Mama, next year. Mama, next week. Mama, <laughs> it's tomorrow, my birthday. I'm quitting school tomorrow. And my mother, who was a, a retired by then, a mathematic teacher, she's freaked out. <laughs> she said, you are not serious. You have to go and take your license. Go to your license, and then you can do whatever you want. You can quit. You can go to university. You can play music. I said, why should I wait two or three more years? It's now the time. I have no, I have no time to lose, you know. So the next day, I was 16. And in France, maybe in America, too, you have to... Uh, you, it's compulsory to... 
to do your studies until 16 years old. But the day of your 16, you are pretty much adult and you can make your decision. And so my, on my birthday, I offered my, a present to myself. I went to the, to the school that very morning. And at nine in the morning, I went to speak to my English teacher. And I said, Madam, I have a communication to tell you. Can I please uh, come near to you, next to you and tell you? And she said, yes, Pierre, what's the matter? I said, can you please take me to the headmaster? I'm quitting school right now and I'm leaving. And she was a very pale white woman. She became even more white when she heard that. <laughs> yeah. And we went together to the headmaster. And the headmaster says to me, what am I hearing? You are quitting school? You know, long story short, I felt a lot of attention then when a youngster like me wanted to quit school. Adults around were very concerned. This teacher, my parents, the headmaster, every, everyone was trying to really understand why I was making this decision and if it was the best decision for me. They were concerned for my future. My son, is now 28. He did exactly the same thing when he was 16 to become a professional dancer. I went with him to the school and we just had to fill a piece of paper into a secretary. We spoke to nobody, no teacher, no headmaster. And that was just the administration concern. And bye-bye, mister. Good luck. You know, for me, it was very different. The headmaster spoke to me. I was in his office. He, he said, what is your mother saying? I said, my mother is totally opposed to the decision, but there is not much she can do. So he called, he calls her. He says, madam, I have your son in front of me. You know about his decision. She said, yes, yes, I know. You have to persuade him to not do this. You have to, to stop this, him to doing this. And he said, but there is nothing <laughs> I can do. There is nothing I can do. He can do whatever he wants. If he, I, I am not going to, to uh, prison him into this school, you know. It was extremely funny, you know. And he wished me good luck. I remember him shaking my hand for the first time and saying, listen, you seem to be so determined. I feel that it's going to be okay for you, but good luck to you. And I, I left school that very day. The hour after I left school, I spoke to myself and I said, now... My mother is freaking out. My father is on expectation. And so I need to prove them that I made the right decision. How can I survive in this world at 16 being a full-time musician? I need to make money right away. I thought about that. I said, I am not going to work another job and then play music when I go home at night. The, the money I'm going to make needs to be generated by the music. It's, it was so obvious to me. So what I did, I took my moped and started to, to see where I could give guitar lessons. The little I knew, I was going to share it with other people instead of a little bit of money so that I could survive and go on. Long story short, one year later, I made my first record. And uh, one year after that, that record won the Grand Prix at the Montreux Festival. So it was very very quick very like like a train you know destiny and uh well deserved by the way let me let me ask you, you something so you went to teach but uh were you playing the guitar in the conventional tuning then or had you had you moved to the uh dad gad tuning which is uh i, I had not moved to dad gad i was playing also in dad gad i i i discovered dad gad on my own when i was like uh, 14 15 years old just by coincidence. No, nobody so influenced you or showed you that? Not, well, I don't know about nobody influenced me. I was listening to blues. I was listening to, right. to uh, the people from the Delta, you know. So but nobody parents. said, Dad, Gad, here, try this. No, no, I didn't even know. I didn't even know to name this tuning, you know, D-A-D, G-A-D. And then I found this tuning for the first time officially in a book by Stefan Grossman related to open tunings. This is when I found that guy there and I said, oh. And I said, of course, why, sh why should I be the only one to have found this tuning? It's just so obvious, you know, you tune down three string and you are there. So, and then I, f then in the year I was 16, I was hanging in a folk club in Paris. And with my friend Hervé, we were learning, playing together, exchanging, trading things. And he said, you know, this tuning that you are playing, there is one English guy who is also playing this tuning. And his name is David Graham. And, and he, he is like 
the father of this tuning. I said, wow, he's the father of this tuning, but I don't even know this man. And I also found this tuning. So he's certainly not my father. But <laughs> at the same time, at the same time, I was very intrigued by this man, especially since we had a poster in our, in our folk club in the permanence room where this guy, with, along with David Graham, along with Mark Sullivan, were hanging together on that poster of a concert they played in Paris organized by that same folk club three years before. So, in fact, I spent one year in that folk club almost every day hanging, playing, receiving people, booking the shows on the Thursday, sweeping, sweeping the floor, cleaning the place with Debbie Graham on this poster every day. And looking at this man, I knew nothing about. I never heard him play. I just knew that Paul Simon and Bert Jensch played a tune by him called Angie. And I said, this man is a genius. He found that guy. Sure, of course. Great, great. And... Uh, Debbie, I also played in that guy, but, you know, that was just between, <laughs> between him and me, you know. But long story short, many, many years later, I played in England. And there was a queue of people after the show waiting for an autograph. They had, I was at, at my merch booth, you know, merch stand, and they were buying records, and we started to talk with people. And there was this tall man in the queue with a woman, and he's, he bought Spices, my record with a band, which I, I did for CBS Masterworks. And he had Spices in his hand, and he wanted an autograph. I said, sure, what's your name? He said, my name is Davy. And then the woman next to him come to my ear and whisper to me, Pierre, this is Davy Graham. And I look at the man, and I see the man of the poster of my 16th year. It was him in flesh for the first time. This is how I met him. So we speak. He's very, very elegant. I say, Davy, I would have loved to, 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 to offer this record and more record. Why did you buy it? He said, oh, man, now you are here. I can stop playing music and I want to support you. That's what, <laughs> ah, what a me. compliment. Yeah, it was amazing. And then several years later, we met again. We even shared the, the stage together. And then he passed away. But so I have this relationship to David Graham, which is very weird. It's very affective, and yet it's not only musical. It's more like a sort of guide giving the the, the, the stick to someone else, like yeah. like sure. you know, like comrades. Like a, his presence, in fact, helped my playing without even knowing his inspiration. Music. Yeah, he inspired me just by his presence. I could feel. I could feel his strength and, and, and musicality just with his poster and all the, all the buzz around him at that time. And when we met, it was amazing. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did the uh, Loudon guitar evolve? I mean, uh, you took to it, and now you have a, a Pierre Ben Suzanne model. I mean, I have, uh, two, I have two signature models by George. That's, a, that's an, well, another amazing uh, kind of symbiosis where the guitar just seems to like right. suit what you do in a very uh, significant way. It's strange, you know, I played, I played my original Loudon since 1978. When I met George, I was 19. And so George built a guitar for me, that guitar, and I took that guitar on the road. I started to record with it from the album Music, my third record, mm -hmm. on until I was one. And in the time between, I had uh, about 12 years ago, I had my first signature model that I, I have played a lot. I never recorded with, but I've played a lot. And I was going to record as one with it. And then I took my old, my old Loudon out of its case and I played and I thought, oh my God, this guitar still sounds so amazing. So that guitar won. I put the new guitar, which George and I call the new lady, or both is the old lady. I put the new lady back into its case, and I, I played the, with the old lady all throughout as one. And wow. then once the album was finished, I put the old lady back in its case, and I took the new lady, and now I'm playing with the new lady only. What a so testament know, to, to what a testament to his ability to craft a guitar, huh? I mean, he he just sounds like a wonderful luthier. You know. What's amazing is that most luthiers don't have any experience once their guitar goes away. They rarely, they rarely see their guitar again. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the guitar is on the other side of the world. 
the guy is touring and it's just a matter of coincidence of luck if they can meet this guitar again. So they don't really know how the guitar is progressing, evolving. Uh, with with my guitar, it was completely different. I was seeing George every other year and sometimes even every year with my guitar. And sometimes it was I was even waiting to see him for him to, to work on the guitar for adjustment, fine tuning and stuff like that. Wow. Or we do refreshing and stuff like that. So George was always very caring about his guitar and always very curious to see how his guitar was evolving. And to the point where he was totally amazed of the sound of that guitar 20, 25 years, 30 years later. You, you and must, now 35 years later. You must rely on the acoustic quality of it uh, over and above having a certain type of high fidelity pickup system built into it. You probably have a pickup in it, but you also always keep a mic out in front of it. I mean, I do, yeah. Yeah, I know that's a recording, you know, secrets, but uh, yeah, it does sound wonderful on this album for sure. Uh, there are two. There are two microphones on the on the take of this album, plus plus uh, the LR bags. Okay. But the thing is that sometimes when I play live, I use only the LR bags because sometimes the mic is bringing more problems that it is adding things. Right. But but to be honest, I think the the best combination to play live. If you want to have a, a, a high a, a high presence of that guitar, is to use the the pickup, but also a microphone and blend the mm -hmm. two together. Yeah. And I will not relate on an internal microphone because those microphones are bringing noise. They amplify all the sound coming from within the guitar. Uh, the sounds that you, the noise that occur when you move your guitar on your legs or you touch uh, the guitar with your hands and stuff. So I'd rather have a microphone outside of the guitar going into a great preamp, the condenser microphone, for instance, plus the, the piezo. And I will trigger EQ and reverb on the piezo. And I will play with the, the sound of the microphone would be like 40%, piezo 60%, sometimes 50% on each. And there would be no effect on the acoustic side of the guitar, just piezo triggering effect. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think it was uh, uh, Vale Johnson, the bass player of uh, the Kenny G band. They asked him about effects, and he said, "I want the bass to be just the sound of the bass because we play in these big halls, and there's so much reverberation. You know that right. uh, the less." the bass is affected, the more I can get away with having the volume up. So I, I would think that an acoustic guitar would have some of the same problems. Uh, trying to get amp adequate amplification in a larger hall, you get less and less uh, need to uh, you know affect it in some sort of a way, so you get that more clarity. I don't know, but it just seems sort of similar to what uh, he was talking about, to be able I to get... I have to I have to confess, John, that I don't have too much of this problem. I don't play in large halls. I play mostly in, in clubs, in small theaters. So I don't I don't come across too much of that problem. Like, But big, you, know what I'm, you know what I mean, though, right? I do, I do, I do. Yeah. Well, if you play in a room with a natural reverberation, good, then you, you need no reverb at all. You should right. have no reverb. The thing is, when I record, I like to to play with... Even if we record the piezo, I don't want to hear it when I record it. When I record, I, I rather play without microphone, without, um, sorry, without headphone and just hear my guitar played acoustically. And when I play just acoustically, I can control the sound so much better. Natural, when, uh, it's a natural exactly, way to play. In fact, yeah. I work the sound much better with my fingers. When I play with reverb and everything is beautiful in the headphone, I become, my fingers are becoming lazy. It's like I'm distracted by this beautiful reverb, this beautiful sound I hear, and I work my sound much less. Mm -hmm. I'd rather do the other way around, like record with, without nothing, just just play acoustically, and once the music is in the box, then I can put the reverb on and bring the volume up, and then it's like, wow, it's very amazing. Can, can we just... Uh... Because we've we've been going here for almost forty minutes, which is incredibly fantastic. Every bit of it, I'm hanging on every word. Um, but let's talk about music style just a little bit on your new album. Um, 
Now, for me, when I listen to you play, I hear influences, but I don't want to. I don't want to pigeonhole you into saying, "Well, he's playing this style." Now he's playing this style because it's all very uh, world music, say, or you, you, you're pulling from many different resources or many different influences. But I would say that the second track I listened to without you, that's definitely a samba. Wouldn't you say? <laughs> wouldn't you say uh, that's pretty? That's pretty much a samba. And then, and then the third track. I don't know if you pronounce it Port New. That's definitely Port Celtic, medieval type of Irish sort of sounding. Uh, Port New is a little fishing harbor in uh, County Donegal. Okay. In Ireland, yeah, yeah. So, so could you talk a little bit about that, just uh, to wrap things up? I mean, style. Uh, I mean, you come up with these ideas, you recreate a musical idea. Do you ever look back and say, where did I? Where has this evolved from? Where did, uh, where did, where did this particular piece of music, uh, you know, come? Ab- I mean, how did it come about? Do you ever think like That's that? A good question. That's a good question. In fact, the music you spoke about Portnew, the music of Portnew has been with me for 35 years at least. And uh, in fact, when I met you, when we met in Santa Monica, yeah, I had already this music with me. It was already in my in my luggage. Right. So, so the music evolves. You know, there are there are music there, and um, you know they are with you. You. And then you let them go, you let them go. And they come back maybe, or maybe they never come back. 
And this one stayed with me. And mm -hmm. so over the years, I will take my guitar and, and fool around with it and look at different ideas that could come out. And there was a moment when I thought maybe this is now the time to give this, to give this, this music a tune, a home, you know. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm trying to give each of my tunes a home. Like there are 12 homes on as one. Yeah. And each home is made of ideas which were gathered by improvisations, by travelings, by watching movies, by meeting people, by uh, sense, uh, um, remembrances related to humanities, geography, history, chronology, uh, travelings, events, books, movies, life events, you name it. I'm not sure, in fact. I don't I have no control on that. What what the only thing I can control is that there is a moment when different random ideas supposedly coming from different places meet and belong to the same well. And this is to me, this is when this is a big revelation when I have the certitude that different ideas that were completely apart all this time are in fact like like two molecules coming together and create an atom. It's funny. And it is exactly how a lot of the compositions of, on As One have been, in fact, coming to me. Mm. This, thought, this is why it take, I take time. This is why I don't do a lot of records. There is no need to. Why should I do a lot of records? I need this process to take time. Sometimes it, it's immediate. It, it, it's, it goes into a, the fertility of an improvisation. Some of the time it takes life, and I wait for this life to go by. And uh, in the meantime, I tour, and there is also a lot of impressions that I gathered from playing live. Um, that sometimes I, I remember that I take chances, which I don't predict, because this is the live, um, the live, um, the live scenario which is dictating this uh, emergency situation, this sort of dangerous call. You know. You mentioned uh, you mentioned Santa Monica. Um... The way that came about is I was recording at A&M Records and the assistant to uh, Herb Alpert was uh, friends with Manny Greenhill. And I think Manny Greenhill was booking your tour. Or managing. He was my manager. He was your personal manager? Yeah. Oh, so, so uh, she heard me playing in the studio and uh, I guess told me about you. She says, there's this French guy that's traveling around right now in his car. You were traveling around. What was that, a Rambler or a Valiant? Or what was that that you were driving? My car? Yeah. My You're, car? It was a Dodge, a Dodge Dart. A Dodge Dart. And you had your records in the boot, in the trunk. I, I had 800, 800 vinyls in the trunk. <laughs> 800? Okay. But 800 you, vinyls you actually trunk. came to my house, which was incredible. And... Uh, so we talked, we played a bit of guitar music, but, but here, you know, I, I heard you play, and I said, this guy somehow has not only invented a way to play his own music, but he doesn't need anyone to, to do it with him, because I was always a group member, right? Studying the guitar in a way I could play with other people in a band or, you know, group situation. But he's managed to get all these different sounds out of the guitar all by himself. And then you played a concert, which you were very excited about, by the way, because you'd already done a show there at McCabe's. McCabe's yes. is, on, is on Pico, I think, right? And yes. you said to me, I'll never forget the look in your eyes. Says, I played at this place called McCabe's. It's fantastic. And I go, yeah, I know McCabe's. I can walk there from my house. It's like... <laughs> So, so I, I invited a few of my friends, and we went to see you uh, play. And that's exactly the way it came across in the concert, is that this was a, a, a standalone sound that you were able to get out of the acoustic guitar, right? Creating bass lines and harmonies, and, and then you intersperse it with all these fantastic scatting whistles. By the way, 
that buzz whistle that you do, which is kind of like almost like a soprano sax, uh, you know, tenor sax kind of sound is fantastic the way that you use that. But that's what I, that's oh, the, you. Uh, you know, summarize. I wanted it to be a soprano, by the way. I wanted it to be a soprano sax. That, but my well, friend, there you go. My friend, the soprano, <laughs> had an accident and could not play. Oh, well, yeah, that's he had, he fell. He fell on his... He had um, his he had embouchure. A he fell on his embouchure. He did, huh? my love. He had a stroke and he fell on his face and he he broke his nose. He broke his mandibule, and he could not play sax anymore. But that oh, was him. Terrible. Was to play. So I said, I'm not going to have another sax player. It was going to be him or nobody's, and I would I would do it on my whistle, you know. But well, you can't anyway, tell people start. that's him playing, but that really is you whistling. But that's to summarize, Pierre. To summarize, you you know. Um, I would say, yeah, um, that concert spoke to me like that. And uh, it's great that we've been able to talk today. Jeez, I want to really thank you for uh, for uh, hooking up and uh, being part of the show. What do you say to that? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Really, uh, good luck with all of the uh, unpredictable controversy that's going on. I know that uh, COVID has just cut all the musicians off at the legs. But uh, yeah. please uh, uh, keep us keep us uh, in mind and keep us uh, you know uh, notified about where you're going to be playing, especially if you come to the uh, states. I really want to come out and uh, see you in the flesh again. Well, I, I was going to rebook my tour next year, but in fact, all the promoters advised me to let 2021 go by and meet again in 2022. So. I think 2021 is going to be uh, no no Pierre in America. And uh, I will hopefully be back in 2022 for touring again. And I will see you in Santa Monica because I, I hope my cave will still be around. You know, this is a problem of this crisis is that some clubs are going, unfortunately, to close down and disappear, you know. And yeah. uh, this, this is very sad when thinking of this, but... But my caves will be around, I'm sure. So I will play my caves again. This is my home in L.A., so I will play there again. And I will, of course, look you up. No problem. All right. Thank you very much. See you again. Thank you, John. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. to Pierre Ben-Suzanne. This is The Guitar Life. I'm your host, John Heusenstamm. This is a Believe podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.